0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, your host for today's interview with Ayelet Baram Sabari, professor at the Faculty of Education in Science and Technology at the Technion in Israel. No, I'm not Daniel Shea, and you might be surprised to, he- to be hearing from someone else on this channel. Don't worry, I haven't kidnapped Daniel. He's invited me to co-host the podcast with him over the next few weeks. Uh, I'm very excited to be you know, uh, uh, discussing and, and, and hosting this podcast and discussing important topics with, main, with leading scholars in the field of science communication, uh, and I look forward to interacting with you, the listeners, as well. Uh, just a quick word about me before we start, so you know who I am. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Academic Language Experts a company that's dedicated to assisting academic scholars to prepare their research for publication and bring it to the world. Um, As you'll see in my upcoming episodes, uh, I'm really passionate about two things, academia and language. Uh, Excuse me, yeah, academia and language. I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and I moved to Israel immediately after high school. I studied education at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, and nowadays, in my spare time, that I don't have much of, uh, I, uh, I'm an avid mountain biker who likes to explore singles in the desert, uh, and I'm the co-host of the New Brooks Network Scholarly Communication Podcast, so what more could you want? Um, and I want to i wanna say a word about my guest today, Ayelet. So Ayelet heads the Applied Science Communication Research Group. Her training is in science education, she has a PhD from the Weizmann Institute of Science, And uh, she also specializes in science communication. Uh, She was part of uh, the prestigious Marie Curie Fellowship at Cornell University. Uh, But in addition to that, uh, Ayelet actually previously uh, uh, was a journalist, editor, and a TV presenter up until
1: 2008.
0: Uh, And that shaped her commitment to evidence-based practice and research in science communication and education. Ayelet founded the Israel Science Communication Conference Series, and she used her position as an elected member of the Israel Young Academy from 2016 to 2020, to build a national infrastructure for science communication training for scientists. She cares a lot about the international community of science communication and was honored to become an elected member of the International PCST Network Scientific Committee. Recently, Ayelet received the Higher Education Award for a young faculty member for an exceptional contribution to society and the community in Israel from the Council of Higher Education. Ayelet, thank you very, very much for joining me today. It's a real honor and pleasure to have you.
1: Hi Avi, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it, it's really it's really great, and I just want to say that you're very brave being uh, my first guest on the NBN uh, podcast. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I will, we'll we'll be learning we'll be learning the ropes together. Uh, so, Avi, I have to say your background is non typical, uh, atypical, I would say, for an academic or a professor, especially at your age. Uh, you start, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about. Uh, how you started out in your career and what led you to academia, um, you know, and how that how that came about.
1: Well, it it is a funny story, I think. So when I was already a very young at very young age, I knew I wanted to be a biologist. Uh, I think it started with popular science, with the book of uh, the double helix by uh, the discoverer of of, uh, of you know the structure of DNA. Uh, Professor Watson, and I was uh, I was sure I'm going to be a, a biologist, and uh, also I had a very good plan for that, you know, I thought um, on the first year of university, I'll find a cure for cancer, the second year of university, I'll find vaccine for AIDS, it was a big thing at that, at that age, and the third, I left the third year open, because I didn't know exactly what I, I was going to solve, and then... When I started uh, uh, my biology training as an undergraduate, I found out a very annoying problem that I did not expect, which was that I hated being in labs. I mean I really, really hated it. And that that's a problem <laughs> when you want to be a biologist, a molecular biologist. Um so yeah, you know, like the the antibiotics would not kill the, the bacteria when it saw me. You know, the, when I, I go collect specimen in the desert, I would get lost. It, it just wasn't not a good, um, a good choice for me. But I didn't realize that what I really enjoy doing is talking and writing about science. And I actually had quite a lot of uh, chances of doing that because as a student, I was working as a journalist. So it was a really big tension between the enjoyment and the joy that I took in writing and talking about science and between, you know, actually doing science. Uh, so at some point, uh, at, I think third year, I found out that A, I'm not going to find cure for cancer and B, I need to find another, another academic route. And since I am from Israel, and Israel is such a small place that everybody knows everyone, I just went and, you know, asked one of the professors what she thinks I need to do. I was in, you know, this uh, crisis uh, stage. And she said something along the lines of, you know, when I was in a postdoc in Stanford, I knew someone uh, who did something called science education. Maybe you should look into that. And, you know, based on this one sentence, I went and did a PhD in science education at the Weizmann Institute. I thought, yeah, that would be the the solution to my problem. And while I was doing that, I found out that there was another discipline that existed in other countries, but not in Israel yet, that is called science communication. And these are people who actually care about... how does scientists or how does scientists talk with different audiences outside of schools? Because most of the interactions between, you know, science and society is not something that takes place within formal schools. And um, so on on the one hand, I was taking the route of, you know, being uh, uh, working on TV and, and writing to different newspapers. But on the other hand, along the lines, I found out that this could also be a really interesting source of research and, and data
0: collection. Interesting. So I, I just, you know, I want to, um, you know, follow up on that a minute and ask you how in the world it's possible that you managed to do a doctorate and hold an academic career while while also doing journalistic work and working TV. <laughs> the TV. Are these, were these in two different times or did you actually do both at the same time? Because I imagine that there are many listeners who are who are tuning in right now and saying, you know, this woman must not need to sleep if she's doing all these things.
1: Well, I, I really didn't sleep because in 2006, my first uh, daughter was born. So I actually did not sleep at all. And that a few years, you're right. Um, I'm going to tell you something. So I think when you're a journalist by training, you're, you're so privileged by the fact that you know how to write to deadline i think that many academicians just um they don't know how to write to deadline they think it's much harder than it is and uh, i think being a journalist really helped me with that as a as a graduate student i was much more able to write and publish uh, than other students and that really really helped me get my first position as as a assistant professor at the Technion at a very young age and very young stage. And um, you know what I'm going to tell you since I left journalism, because in 2008, when I got into the Technion, I left journalism. I didn't think I can do that while trying to get tenure. And I think I've lost some of that discipline that journalists have and um, my ability to write to the point very fast. Uh, to the deadline really deti- well, it's less um, professional than it used to be.
0: <laughs> Interesting. All right. So there you go. So maybe you need to do a, you know, take a sabbatical and go back to being a journalist for a year and, uh, you know, <laughs> and come I back think to that.
1: I that's not research. such a bad idea, actually. <laughs> I, hear, I you sure.
0: hear you. Uh, so, so, and, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the evolution of your, of your, of your research. We you, did, meaning did you already target science communication already in your PhD as a, as a field that you were writing about? Or did it really start more from science education? And then only later on as you developed, did you start working on science communication? And what within the area of science communication, um, what you know piqued your interest? What really stood out to you as like, ooh, that's something that I want to you know, dive deeper into?
1: Well, that's um a really good question. So I started with science education rather than science communication, just because I didn't know science communication existed. And it really didn't exist in Israel. So science education was, you know, the, the closest thing that I found. And um, I think what really piqued my interest was that as a, as a graduate student, I spent so much time on trying to collect data. And the data I was trying to collect was... Um, you know, going and, and trying all these interventions with pre and post questionnaires, and as a student, you get you find yourself uh, really, really begging for uh, school students to fill your questionnaires, and that you'll have the data. And I wasn't alone in that. And what I also noticed was that um, you know we're trying to assume what people, what students need to know. We we give them a questionnaires. They don't know that we come up with an intervention and then we give them another set of questionnaires. They know it better, but then when the PhD left, then they don't do it anymore and everything is lost. So I found this a bit of futile type of exercise. On the other hand, at the same time I was working at on the, it was called science news a program, it was on a specific channel that doesn't exist anymore but it was a popular science TV show and what I, I found really interesting was that we would receive emails from viewers asking questions to the anchor of the show as as if the anchor of the show is the one writing the text um yeah. they were really upset when we weren't answering really quickly, they had all these science questions and I I thought to myself, that's really interesting. So on one hand, on my day job, I'm I'm trying to convince students to fill all these questionnaires that they don't feel like, you know, writing there. And on the other hand, all these viewers, they're just sending their own questions because they're really, really interested in science. So maybe what we really need to do is to see what people want to to know about science and, and use um, information freely available on the internet to find out that, instead of, you know, trying to pull information out of people. That's and fascinating. Luckily, it, sounds
0: like, it sounds like you should have uh, you should have sent your questionnaires to the viewers, then you would have gotten some quick answers.
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> or maybe they would disregard them, because they were Indeed. interested in something else altogether. So Indeed. I think the voice, right. as researchers, uh, we tend to um, think that what we are interested in is very, very important and what the subjects want to know or to tell us is less important. Well, I think in science communication today, we know that it's really, really important to start from what the listeners or what the um, viewers want to know. So in my case, I was lucky enough to convince my supervisor, my PhD supervisor, that we can do research about what people want to know and what children want to know based on the questions that they send to tv shows and newspapers and ask a scientist sites and uh, that's what i did that was my i think my phd was you know one leg was in science education but the other leg was already in science communication
0: interesting that's that's fascinating and it sounds like it sounds like as opposed to your two, you know, maybe your two areas of life competing with each other, they actually were complementary in the sense that you were able to have certain insights from, you know, very practical insights from your your work um, for your, that may have influenced your research and vice versa. Your research may have been an opportunity to uh, to, to, to influence your work. So that, that that's really fascinating. Um, That's so
1: also, I wanna... I was really, oh, sorry, I just want to say that I was really, really lucky in that because it's not just the research and practice that went together, but it's also the service. So you know that many t- times you know scientists are being evaluated for the service, but the service is something that you know tears them away from their agenda. And for me, you know, talking with different publics and um, helping you know with media training, for scientists and all the things that I can do on campus to be a good citizen on campus. That's really part of my agenda as well. And and much of my teaching is about science communication and helping, you know, early career scientists to understand why is that important. So I'm really lucky in that also my teaching and service can be in service of the same agenda.
0: Indeed. I, I think that's a struggle that many academics have is that the the requirements or you know um, expectations of the academic community can sometimes pull them away from what they actually the reason they went into academia in the first place. So in that way, I, I mean, I, I don't want to call it luck because I think there's you know a certain amount of of thought that you know, and, and 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 insight that you had in order to combine these you know these two passions that you had and, and turned it into something really special. So I want to I want to fast forward a little bit um, because it sounds like. That was maybe the seed that was planted in terms of thinking about how do we um, really make, on the one hand, make research accessible, but also listen to our, you know, to, to to students or you know whether it be in university or whether it be uh, at a younger ages and listen to what they're interested in. And I'm curious um, how that kind of you know a, a quick evolution of how your research evolved to what you're doing today, which has to do with. Looking at Google and different and in different languages, and seeing what results students are getting um, when they, uh, you know, are searching for specific scientific terms that maybe came up in a class or came up on a test um, that they're looking for. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your current research.
1: Okay, so I think there's you know two sides to this coin, and um, one side is how to support scientists and effectively communicate their science. But the other side of the same coin is what people do with science in their lives, if they do anything with science in their lives. And um, if you think about it, it's really not that different from what I started doing. Because when I started in my PhD asking these questions, I asked, what do people want to know? And the way I looked at it was uh, using their questions. But if you think about it, um, search terms are not that different from questions. So these are questions that we ask, for example, Google in order to get um, the information we need. It it could be information just for fun and and, and, uh, uh, curiosity, but it could be useful and practical information for making decisions or to doing a task for school. It could be many different ideas. So in the early years, what I did together with Elad Segev uh, from uh, Tel Aviv University was looking at search terms that people uh, searched on Google and tried to figure out from that what is interesting to people. So what people want to know about science and also when something goes on in in the media, for example, there's like a new Nobel laureate from Israel or something like that. So how long is the... um, Uh, how long is the window of opportunity for people to go on and search for information about that topic? Okay. So think about Angelina Julie uh, talking about, um, uh, about the genetics of uh, breast cancer. So how long would be that window of opportunity uh, for people to go on and search for that information because they are interested in knowing more. Um, so that was a, a very interesting stage. And then, we said okay but different people find different information if they look at different uh, languages and and also it's not just different information it's also different quality and different types of information so what exactly happened was that i had a, a master student who is a, a biology teacher she's a, teaching biology in an arabic uh, town uh, and she wanted to uh, enrich her uh, presentation about uh, the cell membrane. So what happened a few years ago that, as she told me, she was looking for um, information about the uh, membrane uh, in, uh, in uh, Arabic. And she found that all the first uh, results, all the first pages of results, we're discussing um, the hymen, <laughs> the female hymen, and how to know if, if it's broken or not and what to do if it is uh, before your wedding goes. Things along these lines. So she was very troubled by that and she looked from membrane in Hebrew. And what she found was partly about cell membranes but also partly about the uh, theatrical show called Krumm by the the, um, great uh, theatrical um, composer Hanukh Levin, but really not about the biological aspects of cell membrane. So she ended up looking for cell membrane, uh, sorry, for membrane in English and used the English uh, search results to enrich her PowerPoint presentation, which was in Arabic. And when she told me this story, I was really puzzled. I told her, you know how everybody is saying, yeah, today all the information is at your uh, fingertips. Uh, Students don't really need teachers to teach them, just to guide them, because all the information is available for them anyway. And all these statements that always makes me really, really angry. Because, first of all, the information is available if you speak English, not if you speak other languages necessarily. And also the fact that the information is there doesn't mean that it's accessible to students or to public audiences. And um, what we thought and what we started to do was really to choose, uh, in her case, 30 canonical um, terms uh, around science, like mitochondria and... um, enzymes and so forth and looking for the search results that you get in hebrew arabic and english as searched from the same the same place and we did find quite disturbing differences so the quality of information in english is uh, better in many aspects And um, you can imagine Swiss students sitting near each other in Haifa uh, or in other uh, city that has multi-language students. And uh, each one of them get different type and different quality of information.
0: Interesting. So if I could could maybe, you know, uh, bring this home, I'm wondering if, you know, The the ramifications of what you're saying is that in theory, let's take let's take the coronavirus for for example. Um, Mm -hmm. We could be, you know, first of all, we could be using different terminology to explain, you know, and 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 different terms, but even you know to to try and describe a phenomenon, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. We're talking about different languages, but but we have to make sure we're talking about the same things. But even even worse is you you may have a situation where um, certain uh, people have accessibility to. Information that's really critical to their own health, uh, in a way that others do not. And when trying to come up with policies, you know, even between countries for you know for 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 travel or or health, um, we may not all be privileged to have the same information at our fingertips in order to be able to even properly communicate and, and try and come up with solutions or or suggestions for for policy.
1: Exactly. And when you give an example like COVID-19, this is, of course, much more complicated than, than canonical science. Yeah, for, for looking at, at, I don't know, the thermodynamics law. So maybe we don't expect much difference when we look at the uh, canonical terms that uh, are being taught in every, almost every science curricula. But we have much more, we can expect much more differences when it comes to science in the making and emerging technologies and socio-scientific issues and, of course, uh, misinformation and conspiracy theories. And that's exactly what we're doing now. So today, with a a group group of uh, uh, collaborators, what we're trying to do is uh, really we came up with a list of... uh, search terms that are um, representative to some degree of socio-scientific issues like climate change and um, uh, genetically modified foods and issues like evolution and um, also emerging technologies and also uh, conspiracy theories that are uh, prevalent in different countries uh, all over the world and we're trying to translate them in an inclusive way to all the uh, languages in the world, or all the written online languages in the world, in order to compare what's the quality of science-related information that people have access to in those topics. So, at the moment, we're not yet there, (laughs) we're not there yet, we don't have all the languages, all the written languages, of course, We have something like 16, and I really uh, invite everyone who's listening to join us in this effort, because what we're trying to do is really to get a very good coverage of languages in the world, and after we have uh, all the terms translated, what we're going to do is to uh, look at the results together with people from these countries, and using a common uh, codebook, a common way of uh, categorizing the results, uh, to look at the quality and compare the quality of uh, information that people in different countries have.
0: So, if I can, essentially, what 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 shocks me and what's really surprising is what if what if I'm understanding you correctly, um, there are even some basic scientific terms that you know, really would be used in a intro to chemistry or intro to biology course um, around the world. And even terms as simple as those, I wouldn't necessarily be able to go on Wikipedia and, and, and let's say, you know, let's not say every language in the world, because, you know, there are a lot of languages that are spoken by, a, a, um, you know, a small, a small quantity of people. But let's take, you know, the the 20 top languages of the world, I would have assumed that I could go onto Wikipedia and find the 30 you know, most important or, or, or 30 important scientific search terms and be able to get basic information in those, you know, 20, 30 languages. But, but if I understand what you're saying correctly, that's not necessarily true. We can't just assume that Wikipedia or, or any other, you know, site really covers the full gamut in terms of uh, scientific terms in, in major languages.
1: So I didn't look specifically at Wikipedia. Of course, Wikipedia was one of the search results that appeared in many of the canonical science terms. So it may be, uh, again, I'm not saying, I'm just saying it may be that uh, the uh, explanation on Wikipedia is rather good in many of the languages, but this is only one of of the search results. You get many others. And it's a question also of what type of results do you get? Um, let's assume you're looking for um, you're looking for um, something that is uh, like crisper, okay? So something that is a bit more advanced. It's it's not something you learn in a, in a junior high school. It's a new technique for uh, uh, editing a, a genome, and you want to uh, know what it is because it's something that appears in the news, and, and you want to understand the world you live in you might find that there's huge differences in the uh, type of information and the wealth of information and the accessibility of information that you might find. Because even if there's, let's say, a good Wikipedia page, which is very detailed, it might be beyond the, inf- the level of information that you can understand, especially if you didn't take uh, science in high school. Um, many times, Wikipedia pages are actually written by you know people who are uh, serious hobbyists uh, in the in the area, and very general public cannot read them or cannot understand them. Furthermore, um, you might uh, think about the fact that in many countries there's a, a big uh, difference that uh, the elites or the people who enjoy uh, access to education and go to high school are already studying in English. So let's say from junior high or from high school, much of uh, the learning is done in English. So if you're part of the majority that don't go to high school, or don't attend high school, then the fact that other people can read it in English doesn't help you. Right, because right. it's not accessible to you. It's accessible to them in a different language that they maybe learned in school, but you did not.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like, I, you know, I don't mean to give you another research project, but it sounds like there's an issue here with language accessibility, but there's also an issue here with um, maybe giving the students the ability or, 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 you know, another player the ability to curate that information so that it's actually helpful to whoever's searching for it. Meaning um, you know, there may be just so, you know, there may be 10 results on a Google page. Um, you know, three may be great. Um, two might be, you know, uh, slightly inaccurate. And, you know, three more might be totally false or, you know, agenda driven or, you know, you know conspiracy driven. And, you know, even the, people's ability to know, which sources they can trust and, 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 and can't trust is probably an important part of this discussion as well.
1: Of course, of course. So media literacy and critical thinking are major issues. I must say, sorry for, to be a party cooper, but I think what research shows us is, A, many people don't know how to do what you just mentioned, so evaluate sources. B, even if they know to evaluate sources, our cognitive Biases whenever it's about, you know, things like evolution and climate change, not to mention conspiracy theories. So many times our own cognitive biases uh, help us choose what we wanted to find in the first place, not uh, not considering quality. And third, I think what research shows us is that even if people know how to spell out, how to evaluate um, websites, it doesn't mean they actually do it in in. In practice so they might tell you if you ask them but they don't do that it's like you know that you know what's healthy for you and what not to eat and that you should exercise but well maybe you do it but not (laughs) i know (laughs) about myself (laughs) that there's a big difference between knowing what's right to do and between doing it
0: right of course of course and i think there's a temptation especially when we're looking for, you know, I mean, we use Google for, for almost, for, for many different things in life, but, you know, with our waning attention spans, um, maybe we have a tendency to read, you know, to, to glance over short form content, which may be, which, which may not necessarily be a bad thing, uh, but it, may, it could very well be that if we see something that's very detailed and, you know, and, and includes too much information, we may gloss over it, even if it is a good source of information. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure the attention spans have, you know, a factor to play here as well. You know, we can also. Talk, there's, a, there's a lot of topics and we're not going to be able to cover them all today, but I'm sure there's a difference between you know, text and video. Um, but I wanna, I wanna, I wanna move on. Maybe we'll have a, a follow up session where we can get into some of these issues more, uh, more concretely. But I'm, I'm curious. I want to take a step back for a second, and I'm curious if you have had any um, thoughts or, or observations that you've had over the last three years. Um, I think that you know. Since the Corona pandemic has started, um, about how effective or ineffective uh, the world of science communication uh, is or 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 has been um, in dealing with, you know, the pandemic, and what you know flaws may have been revealed in terms of how well we we do with with communicating science, and maybe what what are some of the things that can be done about those.
1: Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think it's very broad. It's different you know, between countries and between uh, speakers and uh, so forth. So I can't say that everybody did great or everybody did really bad. But what we can see, I think, is that there are things that are easier than others. So I think what's easier for scientists or medical people um, to understand is... For example, not to use jargon or that there are words that they understand and the audience shouldn't, so they should explain it or the idea of metaphors and analogies. So all these are ideas that, of course, you need to uh, to work on that and be, be conscious of that. But that's something that people can rather easily uh, learn, I think. What's much more hard is to understand the idea that other people may have different concerns and may have different worldviews that would make it very hard for them to accept what you're saying as on faith value and that there are trust issues, they might not trust you or not see themselves as um, uh, being uh, respected by you and all these other much broader Uh, issues that really, really affect the level to which people would be willing to listen to you and do as you suggest. Um, And I think that is much harder to understand, because as scientists, we still have this, um, you know, naive expectation that, you know, facts would talk for themselves. And that if we show the figure and this is the vaccine, and this is the not the percentage of people who get sick with the vaccine, and this is the percentage of people getting sick without the vaccine, these numbers should talk for themselves. And I, I think what we know is that graphs and figures and tables do not speak for themselves. People speak for other people, and people want to hear... Um, to To hear important issues from from um, community leaders that they uh, either community leaders or community members that they identify with, so talking with everybody in the same in the same way by the same presenters is maybe not the best strategy.
0: So, are you saying that maybe it, do, would you think that it's an important? for academics to hone their skills as public communicators um, or do you think that cause is lost? And I know, again, I'm, I'm asking a generic question, but you know, maybe it's better if we put science communication into the hands of, you know, professional uh, more professional orators, or, 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 you know, public communication specialists and let them do the talking on behalf of academia. Meaning where should be, you know, if you were given a, a, a 2 million you know, dollar grant tomorrow, to, to, to try and fix this problem like how would you how do you see addressing this in the most effective way possible
1: oh dear now I have the money and I don't know <laughs> what's the best way I don't have to think about that but uh most surely there's
0: after you buy yourself a nice <laughs> watch of course
1: of course yeah now I know what you want for a birthday so <laughs> <laughs> um so I think there's two things that are for certain, okay? One is that people do want to hear from academicians themselves, from the people who actually um, come up with the knowledge, okay? People don't just want to hear it from mediators. So it's really important that scientists will be able or are able to communicate with different publics. That That's for certain a really important um, issue to have in academia. It shouldn't only be with the general public. It could be with journalists or policymaking uh, but it should be something that the people who come up with the new knowledge will be able to also communicate it to other stakeholders. That's important. The other thing, the other hand is that not everybody needs to speak with everybody all the time. Okay? So if scientists should definitely be in the labs and come up with new medicine and not just run from, you know, studio to studio and from school lecture to another school lecture. So there should be balance. And people who are good at it and people who like it should speak with the audiences that they feel comfortable with. Uh, But I just think that we can make more scientists feel more comfortable with more audiences that we currently have. So that would be the connection between the two the two statements that I made. So on the one hand, it's important that the public hears the, the scientists themselves. On the other hand, uh, it's um, it's really important that people are good at it. will talk <laughs> because you can also cause damage. But uh, and I think we can have more people being good at it than currently we have.
0: In, got it. Got it. Interesting. Now, you, you mentioned the, um, the, the issue of jargon um, and people using terminology that maybe to them they use on a day-to-day basis, but they, they forget that others outside their field aren't necessarily so familiar with that. So I know you've come up with a really cool tool uh, called the Dejargonizer. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it works and maybe how people can, can, can check themselves uh, before they, they communicate with others?
1: Well, I, I love this tool. So this tool um, uh, with Elad Segev uh, and Tsiporo Raketzon uh, is doing a very, very simple thing, actually. It's um, you type in or copy paste your text that is intended for public audience and you press start. And what you get is uh, um, in, red, in red letters, the words that are v- less common and might be jargon, okay? So we're not always telling you only, uh, on, only pointing a jargon words, uh, but many of the, of the indications that the, the jargonizer give uh, are words that public audience might not know. And that's really important because uh, we have the course of knowledge. Once we are using a word all the time, We just assume that everybody else does as well. And what's really nice about uh, jargon is maybe on the one hand, it's a a big problem, but on the other hand, it's rather easy to notice and to solve. So once you're aware that you might be using words that other people don't understand and you get an indication, it shouldn't be that hard to change it if you're not in the habit of, you know... um, arguing with computers and you just tell the computer that the computer is wrong but um, and to your question of how do we do it that's also very simple actually we counted counted um, uh, the distribution of different of different um, sorry the prevalence of different words in um, public communication and we just had different cutoffs of uh, how many you know different benchmarks of of uh, how many words uh, per, let's say, 1 million would make it a, a rare word or something that only people with the academic um, uh, education might uh, know? And and that is based on, on general literature. Um, so, generally speaking, people are more than welcome to go on scienceandpublic.com. So, scienceandpublic.com, that's the URL. And... Um, you know try out and also it's important to know that it's open code so if anyone wants to try it out not in english but in their own language so they can just take the code it's on github and uh, try it out with their language we would be really interesting to know uh, how it works
0: fantastic i i um... I have to say, I, I was very excited when I first came across your research. I have no doubt that many of our listeners are going to be very excited and, and want to figure out how they can either help or get help or, you know, uh, uh, take part in some of the research that you're, you're working on or just find out more. So what's the best way uh, for everyone, you know, for anyone who wants to reach out to connect with you, um, you know, and, and, and where can they learn more about your work?
1: Oh, that's wonderful. So, in the easiest way, just send me an email. So, it would be Ayelet, my first name, at Technion, my institution, dot IC Ayelet at Technion, A-C-I-L. And uh, if you look for Ayelet Baram Tzabari, luckily there's like one in the world with that name. So, you'll get me, you'll find me really quick. And of course, my works on my, um, are on my uh, uh, research group website and on Google Scholar, and I'll be happy to send whatever you need.
0: Fantastic! I uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. I know it's been you know this has been really informative uh, for me, and you know learned a lot about you know just being aware and sensitive to to how we communicate, but also what information is out there and available uh, online, uh, depending on what language you speak. And, you know, I just think that, you know, it's really fascinating and you should, you know, please do continue updating us and keeping us in the loop about your progress, because I have no doubt that not only are our listeners interested, I'm sure that there's a, you know, an ear at Google who's, uh you know, who's got one eye on this as well, trying to figure out, um, you know, who this Ayelet woman is and and and, and what she's doing and, and and who knows, you know, what it will turn into. So so um so thanks so much i appreciate your time and uh, and for being the guinea pig and being you know and for successfully completing our first uh our, or at least my first podcast as the co-host <laughs> of the new books the scholarly communications channel on the new books network so thanks everyone for joining us and we look forward to uh just speaking to you next time